Hello, and thanks for plugging in to join me, Matthew Grant, for this week's interview with Mark Lustert, founder and CEO of Doc9. Now, it's always fascinating talking to people that have founded and built their own company, but on a slight twist to how startups are sometimes thought about insurance, Mark didn't set up Doc9 to disrupt traditional insurers, he's actually done the opposite. He's created a company to help the incumbents catch up with the agile, nimble, innovative startups through better use of technology and customer engagement. Mark's been a long-time supporter of Instech London and, like many others, has found some of his clients through our events and connections. Hang in there to find out just how he's done it. Well, Mark, it's great for you to join us today. This is a slightly different type of discussion than I think we've ever had before on the Instech London podcast. So really interesting to hear about both how you built Doc9 and, of course, to learn some best practices for user engagement and building websites. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, now, you've got an interesting career. You were a web designer yourself. You worked in private clients doing their marketing. And then back in 2008, you saw the light and decided to build your own business. So what was it that sort of gave you the motivation to leave from you know, what at one time, maybe not so much anymore, was a safe world of employed work and uh, branch out into building a business? The honest answer is 2008, if you, if you cast your mind back, was a bit of an interesting time in the markets. And uh, um, I was actually uh, um, uh, let go from a company because I was a non-fee owner. Uh, um, and I used that as an opportunity, really, to build upon some uh, some kind of private work I've been doing, building websites for a while. And it really kind of spun that into a positive, really. Uh, I think it's probably a good lesson out there some others at the moment as well uh, so use that as an opportunity to to start doc nine and the focus really then was after spending four years post-university uh, kind of cutting my teeth i guess in the commercial world um was enter really zone in a focus on kind of financial companies more generally and helping them build digital products um and actually the early 2010s was actually quite a boom time in digital despite the uh, financial crisis and um that's the origin story so Doc9 started in, in 2008, and to just talk a little bit about what it is you do now as a business, yep. what's the range of what you're offering? We're a digital innovation agency that works in the financial services sector. So we build things like websites, portals, chatbots, uh, APIs, etc. And we really view our role is to help incumbent players uh, innovate, adapt, and hit back at the startups. That's our kind of mission uh, mission in life. Ah, so you've you've basically decided which side of the revolution to be on and you've decided to line up with the the existing companies is what's the uh, thinking behind that because i mean the rest many people think that the startup world is is great fun and innovative and that's the yeah. place to be but you've decided on something slightly different yeah and i think um I think really there's an opportunity there and, and, and really for, for incumbents, um, you know, there's, there's often a lot of hype and excited talk of, about startups and some of them doing some really cool stuff. But actually, as you know, and I think perhaps we'll touch on a bit later in this discussion, you know, uh, sometimes all this stuff doesn't come to fruition. Uh, and it's actually really quietly the, the incumbents that kind of learn the lessons of the ways of working and kind of absorb some of the, the, the lessons that startups uh, can kind of pioneer. There's often the, the incumbents that then start to leverage their advantages. So they have actual customers, they have lots of knowledge and know-how. And really, we spotted an opportunity for you know, those incumbents that have those advantages, but are not leveraging them because they're not working in the right way internally, or they're not necessarily leveraging uh, uh, new technology. Really, our, our role was to help them kind of adopt those new ways of working, adopt new technology, and innovate and, and prevail, I guess, would be the, the mission. So, Mark, you were around five years ago when InsureTech 
started getting a lot of attention. And at that time, there was a lot of interest in digital companies starting to look at using mobile for buying insurance. And yeah, at the time, yeah, certainly a lot of investment and hope for, for change. Mm-hmm. But f- five years further on, if you could see where we've got to now five years ago, have we delivered on that promise or are things moving more slowly than you might have been hoped? Yeah, I guess actually cast mind five back I think that's possibly when we first met when I first came to one of the Intertech London events I think that's fairly early coming along uh, and which are fantastic events by the way for anyone that hasn't hasn't been to them before when you, when you get back up and running um, and I think the perspective that we've got is probably a little bit different uh, to some that are listening uh, given that we're sort of more at the coalface helping incumbents you know deliver self-service and, and, and work around their legacy platforms but but really we're also thinking about the future and my role is to to really focus and keep a keen eye on uh, what's happening in fintech and insurtech and our motivation really is to try and then you know, learn from them and help our clients you know, beat them at their own game and if you look back at the last five years um, I think I've been to many events where there were lots of uh, you know, plucky innovative startups promising to change the world of insurance and, uh, um, and actually there were quite a few events at the time that had taglines around you know what would be the uber of insurance and who's going to disrupt the market um, I think what was driving that as well, uh, as well as uh, the um, um, certain momentum that, that gained through investment, was there were some broader technology trends that were happening. So, um, you know, the rise of connected devices, uh, the maturity of mobile, uh, but also the maturity of things like artificial intelligence, um, along with the, the barriers to entry for AI becoming a lot lower. Um, and, um, yeah, a lot of excited talk. But if you look now, you know, has there been a fundamental change in the user experience for most customers? You know, it's really interesting to note in hindsight that where incumbents and insurtechs have partnered, I think we've seen some real traction uh, in the market, particularly in areas like claims, uh, where some companies, um, a former client of ours, 360 Global Net, have done some great stuff in the claims space and have really used technology to speed up and make the claims process better. You can still see some you know, real life impact on the whole if you look at the, uh, the market. Um, those startups that really promise to reinvent the end-to-end customer experience and really disrupt the market, be the Uber insurance, I think you'd have to say they failed on that metric. You know, when there's a new technology that comes available, there's typically a lot of excited talk early on around, you know, some bold predictions. The world's going to change. You know, we're never looking back, and there's going to be rapid disruption. There's a lot of investment in startups, and you get pretty rapidly to what they call the peak of inflated expectations. Um, but then, when that change doesn't happen, people, you know. Uh, maybe start to write off as technology as a fad or these changes as a fad. And it's only really uh, in that, in, when people are less excited often, in those years after, that the real innovation happens. And back to my point earlier around, typically it's incumbents that then, you know, take the lessons and, and start to really utilise this technology to, to really help them operationally and, and help them in the real world. What are your thoughts? Do you, do you think that looking back over the five years, um, you know, from a customer perspective, we're in a very different place? So generally, yeah, I think everyone agrees the market's got a little bit moved slowly. Maybe the, the expectations were too high in, mm. the, in the first place. But clearly, well, I hope clearly because you're still going and you've been successful. Your clients have been progressing and have benefited from what you've been doing with them. So are there some specific examples you can talk about of people you've helped over those last five years you know, move forward in terms of their digital engagement with their customers? That's probably one of the big plus points from the, the insurtech revolution, so to speak, is that it really created a bit of competitive pressure on incumbents and really, you know, gave them a bit of a kick up the arse, I guess, in terms of innovation. Uh, I think that's been one big plus. 
So if we look at what we've done uh, with our clients, um, so we work with within the insurance space, you know, from your small and medium sized size Lloyd's brokers all the way up to large global players like Arch and Assurant. And I can give you a few examples, types of projects we work on, if that's useful. Yeah, that'd be great. So within the B2B space, uh, last year, we uh, helped Arch deliver one of their first broker portals. Um, and this was for a corporate travel insurance product, a bit of a curveball that the users of the system were in Australia. So all the user testing that took place had to happen in the middle of the night. Uh, but that's a successful uh, portal that launched for them has delivered some great results. And I think, you know, that's a good example of a large incumbent kind of adopting new ways of working uh, and applying them and delivering some, some real world results. Well, that's great. Well, I, let me talk about a few more examples in a minute, but just on that one particularly, and you, you mentioned brokers and for those that are familiar with the London market, of course, or Lloyd's market, of course, all transactions need to be done through, through brokers. It's not the case everywhere. But what's your experience of being or what is the sort of the guidance you give to companies if you've got to create a portal to bring brokers in versus if you're going direct to consumer? I'm assuming there are some quite different ways you need to engage with people and also different ways you need to integrate into their existing systems. In terms of the London market, if you look, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening in the background around electronic passing of data just to get some more efficiency between broker to broker and broker to insurer. But if we think about products where you're delivering a portal, well, actually, the way you approach it shouldn't really be different from how you approach it with, with customers, you know, you know, policyholders and prospects. So a lot of the things we actually do are um, applying the same principles of user experience design. So the idea that you uh, have an idea, you research with users, you prototype that idea. Uh, it, this can all happen in a number of days. You go to a lab and you test with those real users before you, you know, fall into the old way of developing things. That delivers much better user experience and enables you to innovate. And one thing we've often found is when you lab test broker portals with brokers, they kind of expect the level of customer, uh, user experience they get in the B2C world. And yet, yeah, I think traditionally there's been a view that, you know, brokers will put up with it in terms of broker portals. You know, they have to use you. Well, actually, uh, in the market, people are focusing a bit more on broker user experience and delivering that B2C level of experience for brokers. You know, it's a bit of a, can be a bit of a differentiator uh, in an increasingly crowded market. So true. Your point about people expect what they have in the consumer world and, you know, the, the, the apps we're used to or the technologies such as Amazon or Netflix or LinkedIn it has got hundreds of thousands, millions of people testing it. I mean, that must be a real challenge if you're going to be rolling out a technology that's got far fewer users. And you, and you mentioned there the lab, which is where you do that user testing. What happens when you put people into the lab and how do you test Sure. for uh, for user experience sure and the idea here with the usability lab is that you know everyone has their own personal views and biases around how a website should work or how a portal should work or, or an experience but the idea here is to really hone down and test these ideas with real users because often you find that you know if you're running a survey on customer experience or user experience what users say they do and what they do are often quite different so the, the, the idea of a lab and the way it's structured, it's a kind of scientific, uh, neutral way of validating an experience. So the way it works in practice is uh, uh, there's two rooms. Uh, you have the viewing room, which is us and the client, and the, and the testing room, which has the uh, user being tested and a facilitator. And you typically have six users come in for a day. You can find out a lot with six users. Uh, and each come in for an hour slot. And what you do is the facilitator sets them a task on the, the portal or the website uh, and their role then is to kind of keep their mouth shut uh, and let the user use the experience. 
And when they get stuck, they question why and they delve into why. And we always recommend, if possible, to get senior management into the room, into the viewing room uh, to watch this. Because, you know, seeing your actual customers, be they brokers or, or policyholders, using your digital uh, uh, platforms and sometimes not having a great experience can be a real eye opener and can really help sort of build, build momentum for change. So that's how that works sort of in practice. It sounds like one of those interrogation cells they have with a sort of one-way mirror on it is that is that how they work people think, uh, it's, it's slightly friendlier than that there is you know there's fruit available and uh, a beer for the users if they want to have a beer it's not quite as bad as interrogation cell but uh, but no the, the principle of the kind of uh, you know the, the the viewing room looking at the the, the person um it, it is is correct and all of these sessions are recorded and actually if you couple this process with another ux technique uh, which startups do really well which is this idea of rapid prototyping an idea so, uh, you know, if Instech London, you had an idea for, I don't know, a self-service booking form for your, your website, for example, in the old way of building websites and platforms, you know, you go through a fairly arduous process, documenting all the requirements for it, creating mock-ups, going out to market for someone to build it, perhaps, uh, taking the specification document out. Then somebody goes away and builds it, delivers it back to you, and you realise, ah, oh, it doesn't actually do exactly what we want it to do, or it doesn't exactly do what our users want it to do. So the idea now is that you can use tools to rapidly prototype ideas. So that booking form, you could build a prototype in, you know, it could be an afternoon or a couple of days. Uh, uh, and then you test that prototype with users in a lab. So this enables you to experiment. So you could test ABC ways of this, proto or this journey working. And then you can uh, validate them with users. And the beauty of this process is that you can test and validate the right approach before a line of code is written. And if you, you know, if you're familiar with the insurance world of uh, uh, IT development, that's that's quite a radically different way than a lot of insurers still work to this day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about speed, isn't it? And and we're yeah. seeing more and more low-code or no-code solutions. I, I guess linked directly into that. And so, in terms of what you're doing at Doc Nine, are you the ones that are doing those prototypes and iterating, or are you sort of doing the initial design and then you work with? the client directly or third parties to start doing the design and build section? Yeah, so it, it, for someone like Arch, we did the uh, the research, design and the build and we worked with their internal team to do some systems integration. For other clients, we do uh, just some research at the beginning. We, sort, we, we support their internal teams to do some building. Um, and that's often actually that's our first engagement is to do almost like an audit to research and benchmark where their experience is. Uh, and some people then want us to take that on and, and help them design a new experience. But often they'll take that research and internal teams will run with it. So another area you've done, Mark, is you've taken a look at other insurance companies out there. And, and in the past you did this, you profiled mm. companies. Is that something you also do fairly regularly just as a, a free service or to help people just assess you know, what good practices across different Companies. Yeah, you're right. So I think, a, I think it was 2016, 2017, we released a public report kind of benchmarking, I think it was top 25 insurers. And this was based on, on really releasing publicly some internal research that we did with users. And we invested quite a lot in that to really benchmark and take some general learnings uh, to the sector around best practice for usability on mobile and etc. We haven't actually released that publicly again. Uh, uh, we do that research very often. We use that as a foundation for working uh, uh, with our uh, on client projects, but we we haven't made kept that as a regular thing every year. But you can do sort of individual one-off audits, can't you, of people's websites, yeah. and then they, they like what you say, yeah. or they don't they don't like what you say, but they've got to fix it. Uh, <laughs> you can then you can then work with them. So exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a kind of very intriguing area. And just another one I wanted to just get your view on is 
this balance between mobile and computer you know mm. so there's a lot of talk about we mentioned it before about people wanting to get things done through an app mm. there's obviously a limit to what you can force through which is fine if you've got very simple insurance as you get older there's a limit to what you actually can see on your phone as well um yes. what, what what are you seeing in those kind of trends of people buying your know, online through their computer versus buying through a, a mobile device oh, it's, i guess it it varies by line of business uh, and um, you know certain lines of business where you've got a thousand questions for example so you know a motor trade combined policy for example which has you know a really larger amount of questions to ask than the travel insurance policy however interestingly in the b2b space um, we actually see the opposite so you know they are largely still using desktop applications to the to, to drive business through uh, through broker portals so quite a big difference there Okay, yeah, so sort of, I suppose, as you'd intuitively expect, and I guess part of what's happening, what we all know, what's part of what's happening in the retail space is trying to reduce the number of questions that the, the client has to answer or the potential client, so you can just do it more, more easily. Uh, the other area I know you've been taking a look at is, is voice, and is that an area you're also starting to think about? I mean, is there even a whole area there of, of user experience and design for voice, or is that just too simplistic to try and attempt that? Yeah, it's interesting. So in terms of voice, actually, we've done a lot more in the chatbot space, uh, which is a bit different. They are, they are aligned. But if we look in the chatbot space, so this, again, was a technology uh, that there was a lot of hype kind of five years ago, some sort of uh, time period. And just to, to recap, chatbot enables the user to ask questions in natural language, human language, and to get an answer back. Uh, and that answer comes from the computer, AI-driven answer rather than a human. So there was a lot of excited talk a few years ago, particularly in the mortgage space and others of, okay, well, you're no longer going to have a mortgage broker or you know uh, a human answering these questions and advising. It'll all be automated. But actually, that didn't happen. And similar... Um, to other technologies, people I think started to write off this technology and think, well, that was just a fad. However, interestingly, over the last 18 months, we have moved from you know just doing proof of concept projects to actually uh, some uh, moving ahead with some projects for, for clients in real life uh, using chatbots uh, and starting to deliver some real results. But interestingly, these typically aren't in the B2C space so far. So what we've now found is that you know if you think about you as a business operationally, if you think about your call center, there's often lots of queries that are coming through that could be from brokers or you know, could potentially be from customers as well, that really don't need a human to, to answer that query. So we've done some work with mortgage lenders and we're working with a, a top 10 bank at the moment on, on utilizing chatbot technology uh, to automate uh, and um, um, answer simpler queries. And the idea here is to free up human agents to, to have more high value conversations. And on that chatbot one, I mean, there's a whole back end, isn't there, of when mm. the chatbot needs to understand or is clever enough to give an answer, but also clever enough to know when you have to switch over to a, a human mm. as well. So is that partly what you're designing, the sort of the, the, the human intervention piece as well as just the automated chatbot? Yeah, and I think that the great thing here is that uh, much like AI more generally, uh, so this is kind of a, uses a subset of AI called um natural language processing. And the great thing here is now you can build a chatbot leveraging up, you know, Microsoft and Google's other technology really rapidly. So you can build a chatbot, you know, in days and weeks. Uh, and the idea here is that you are utilizing some already existing technology. So this AI framework, and basically what you, you, you do is you leverage that to understand the intent of the user. And then our role is to design and understand, you know, what are the intents that the users are gonna look to uh, communicate with this company about and, and, and design flows for answering these intents. 
and you can identify you know for example you can add lead scoring so if you think actually uh, it'd be really good if a bdm spoke to this person now this is a really high value lead uh, you can proactively pass them to a human agent there's a really exciting space and bdm that's a business development oh person. sorry business development yeah and then presumably in the last three months when everybody's been digital uh, for those companies that haven't been able to get their call centers fully operational i'm assuming that's been a um, the moment for chatbots is it to deliver on their promise yeah no no exactly i think um, we've seen some big names in the financial world like tsb and nationwide uh, that have rapidly delivered chatbots uh, to help them with this you know, unprecedented level of uh, inquiries that are coming through for things like payment holidays i think that that's really shown the use case uh, uh, or the current situation has really highlighted it chatbots are highly scalable they can deal with you know an almost unlimited number of concurrent conversations you know they don't get sick uh, and actually, at the moment, the, the technology is mature enough to deliver real value operationally uh, right now. One thing we often found is if you, you know, if you dip your toe in the water, so to speak, in terms of you launch a simple chatbot, so actually you've identified some common queries coming through. It could even just be a chatbot where you're frequently asked questions. The second you launch that, you start to get really rich real-time data about what your customers want from you as an organization. So this is really useful, not just for the people looking to optimize that chatbot, but actually we've seen this data used you know, with other, other parts of the business to really get that kind of real-time understanding uh, about what the users want. So you're, you're actually capturing the queries that about type of insurance you can't offer, but actually if you get enough of those queries, you recognize there's some value in there. And of course, you own that query as opposed to buying it from Google. So that's really interesting. Exactly. And all the major bot platforms have, well, most of them, you know, think about Microsoft and Google, they have really good analytics packages built in. So again, it isn't something that costs a lot of money now to implement. And it's a good thing to, you know, at least consider uh, how it could benefit your business. So just moving on from chatbot, what about voice? I mean, that, that was being hailed as uh, a great new solution. What are you seeing in that area? Are there some new things coming out on that? Or is that also plateaued a bit? I guess it's probably been a similar vein to chatbots where, again, there was a lot of hype a few years ago and you did see some quite arguably quite gimmicky things get launched to start with. So a lot of banks uh, added skills for Alexa so you could say, you know, what's my current balance or similar. But really, these aren't really game changers. And I think within financial services, uh, um, we haven't seen those use cases really in the real world yet. Um, one thing interesting, I think, going back to COVID-19 is outside of financial services, I think you probably will see the rise of voice uh in other uses for example you know for my sins occasionally i, I go to mcdonald's and you press the touch screen and you think by me how many other people have touched this uh today um but actually you know these are areas where you know people are more conscious about this now and this could be an area where you know perhaps you just talk to that in future to take your order versus um having to touch touch screens i think i think it will find its place but i'm not 100 convinced within, within the world of the world of insurance so mark you know the the, the proof of the uh the pudding is in the eating. Uh, taking a look at your website now, doc9.com. Uh, I'm sure you know where it is, but for anybody else that doesn't, uh, which of your case studies there do you think is, I don't want to put you on the spot and say the best one, but is a good representation of what you're doing that people could take a look at? I think a good example for this podcast would be Protect Your Bubble and Assurance. So uh, we won uh, Protect Your Bubble as a client about three and a half, four years ago. Uh, and they came to us with a brief, which was looking to transform and, and deliver a better user experience for their customers. And they are, if you haven't heard of them, one of the biggest gadget insurers around. And that was the start of a really uh, long and fruitful relationship with Assurance, who are the parent company of Protect Your Bubble. Assurance, a large you know, multi-billion turnover global insurer and we've been working with them in a very agile way and I think they're, they're a great example of you know, a company that's embraced agile ways of working uh, you know, 
adopted a principle of continual improvement and development. And I think, um, yeah, that's probably one of, one of the most, um, one of the relationships we're most proud of uh, making a difference within the incumbent insurance space. And then just before we wrap up, you've joined us as a corporate member. It'd be, it'd be great just to hear in your own words you know, what it is about Internet London that gave you the motivation to, to join us and support us. So I've been coming to Instate London for I think I was at one of your early early meets, and um, in terms of the, the 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 atmosphere, I think that's one of the big pluses from coming along. I've made some great connections, uh, and we've you know we've won clients off of uh, networking that I've done uh, at, at the event. But actually, I think it's probably one of the most honest and open forums. So it kind of you know cuts through the chaff, I guess, and gets to the point. And you and Robin and others and Paolo, I think, have really kind of uh, facilitated some really interesting discussions at these events. Brilliant. Well, that's great to hear. And again, thank you for your support. So, Mark, I know you're also just kicked off a podcast and starting to talk to some people about areas of interest. Uh, we're always we're always open to new competition. Could you just tell us a bit about what's going on there? I had a fair amount of lunches booked in the diary previously that I wasn't able to to meet in person. I thought, you know, hey, let's use those, uh, you know, bookings in the diary and uh, uh, do interviews over zoom and others and that's kind of evolved into a podcast a doc called doc nine tech talks uh, which is on itunes all the usual channels and our last one was actually speaking with that client i just mentioned assurance so i had a chat with uh, their european uh, uh, commercial head of strategy uh, so there could be some interesting uh, content in there for your members as well. well well done well robin mertens would be horrified to hear that uh, if, if the future of lunches was podcast, but I'm sure at some point we will we'll actually we will be getting back together again, and yeah. podcasts and lunches can exist in a in a happy uh, world together. Well, well done, doing, done doing that. Uh, and what what's the name of the podcast? So it's called Doc Nine Tech Talks. Great. We'll put a link in the episode notes as well. Uh, Mark, that was that was great. Thank you very much for that. And as I say, I look forward to getting back together face to face. Uh, well done building the business. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows you've been in that space. It's, it's tough to do, and you've got some you've got some great output. So uh, look forward to the next the next decade or so. Thank you. Great stuff, and look forward to catching up in person soon. Hopefully. Well, whilst we're talking about websites, if you're curious about what we're up to at Instec London and haven't already discovered us at www.instec.london, then you might find that a useful place to go to find our content, all our podcasts, events, past and future. And whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter to find out what we're thinking and what's coming up next. Now, if you do find these podcasts useful, it'd be great if you could leave us a rating on whatever podcast channel you're listening on. If you're on the iPhone, it's that purple Apple podcast icon. And if you scroll down to the end of the episodes, you can give us a score and leave your comments. So have a great week.